Welcome to Cambridge Stronger, where culture counts and values matter most. I'm your host, Amy Weber. And joining us today is the president and co-founder of Retirement Plan Advisors, Josh Schwartz. Thanks for coming on the show, Josh. Thanks for having me, Amy. It's going to be great. I can't wait for our listeners to learn more about you. Uh, you and I have been working together, I believe, somewhere around 23 years because we started when we were 11. And um, I'd really like you to start off by um, going even further back than that, beyond maybe before I knew you, and tell our listeners your story. How did you get started in the profession and how did you get to where you are today? Thanks, Amy. It, it has been a great run together. And I'm glad our listeners can't see us because then they would know that I may not be. <laughs> I started when I was 11. You know, when I was growing up, I was always interested in money and finance, but I didn't really know what that meant from a career standpoint. Uh, and when I graduated college or my senior year of college, I was interviewing for jobs and I interviewed with a mutual fund company for their um, direct client facing sales. And this firm actually focused on financial planning. And for the first time when I was in that interview process where they were explaining, you know, what were, what it was a management training program, what we're recruiting people for, it was we sit down with people and help them analyze their financial circumstance and identify solutions. And that clicked with me as uh, for the first time that I understood a little bit better um, what finances and financial uh, planning or financial management was. And that this is actually something I could do and wanted to do and was interesting and also would let me help people. It was, uh, it was a really, uh, it clicked in a surprising way. That was a long time ago. And I've actually, that's all I've been doing ever since. So I was with that company for a couple of years. And from there, I moved into actually group retirement plans, uh, the employer sponsor side. So not just working with the individual, but coordinating it through the workplace. Even then it was obvious to me that most people, working Americans, that their financial planning, that their retirement planning really started at work. Uh, this was the beginning, 401ks were just starting, there I dated myself, um, but that's where it clearly was moving. And I wanted to work in that, in, in that space to sort of get, get to the core of it. And I started working with a large insurance company in their group retirement plan division, in the beginning, I was an enroller or an educator. I worked with the employees. Interestingly, at the time, just fell into accidentally a public sector niche. So I was working predominantly with government employees. And then I was there for more than a decade. And what started happening was back then, insurance companies and mutual fund companies, they were really offering product, but not advice. Uh, and what we were finding is that while people may have been buying products, what they wanted was advice. People wanted and needed help. They didn't know what to do. And I found myself along with who ultimately became my future partners, feeling a disconnect between what we were doing representing a product company and where our hearts were and what we wanted to do. And we thought, believed that there was a space. And this was, like you said, over 20 years ago, uh, now it's every day. Everybody's doing advice, advice. But this was over 20 years ago. We thought what people really want and need is advice. So we left the insurance world, the product world, and actually started Retirement Plan Advisors with the mission of providing 
uh, employers and employees independent advice in a fiduciary capacity so that people could plan for a more financially secure retirement. We were sort of betting on the idea that there were people who would actually pay for advice, not just buy a product. And that, uh, and this was interesting because this was as you know, 20 plus years ago at the beginning of the internet and already financial services firms to save money were pushing people to online experiences. I remember when airlines started making people pay $10 to talk to a ticket agent versus buying the ticket online. Now we don't even think about actually buying an airline ticket, but for a while they were charging extra to make that happen, to drive the behavior. And we felt actually people wanted to talk to a person. So we left, we started Retirement Plan Advisors with my two founding partners. Uh, uh, they were uh, senior to me back at the uh, insurance company in the product company days. One was my mentor and professional and the other gentleman was his peer colleague. They were vice presidents, I was a director. Uh, they have since retired. So there's a, there's a story there too to share as over their 20 plus years. But we started Retirement Plan Advisors and came to Cambridge in partnership, Cambridge, yourself at the time, Eric Schwartz, uh, the Cambridge founder, also focused on advice. How do we be independent and help people? Uh, there was a cultural fit there. And I'd say the, the rest is history. As we like to joke, um, back then we were three guys with cell phones uh, running around trying to find clients and bring on advisors who shared a similar mission. And today we have uh, staff and advisor staff of over 80, and we are just about, and we'll see the market's down a little bit today, but overall, I think we just crossed $5 billion in plan assets under advisement. Congratulations. Yes, Thank I have. You. it's been Thank fun you. to watch you grow and the success. We had no doubts for sure. You all showed that fire for what you're describing, which is helping people and providing advice. Um, just a, a, to extend on that a little bit, has the method in which you deliver advice back then when you were really an entrepreneur in that environment changed today? How And, and if so, how? Is it different when you're interacting with clients than it was 20 years ago? So that's, that's a great question. And you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So in many ways, it is fundamentally different. And COVID has, is no small part of that. We've video conferencing existed for years. But the necessity of using video conferencing, even for a little period of time, helped break through the inertia with clients. And what they were actually, we found is that it doesn't replace in-person, but what we found is it was much easier to find the 45 minutes that that couple needed. Our, our advisors are mostly in the workplace. And a lot of the conversations then are only happening with one half of the family. And they would want to have a joint meeting and that would take some time to schedule. You know, when can they come into the workplace or in our office? Um, and, and now that uh, the idea of virtual meetings has been broken down, we're finding we're actually able to spend more quality time in, with our clients at a time that works for them. And, and then there's a, lo a lot of other pieces, e-signature and email. Everybody or most people are on email. And, uh, you know, so just in terms of interacting with clients, a lot of the modalities maybe have changed, but ultimately it still comes down to the same thing, a personal relationship of trust with the person where you're there to help them in an unbiased way, focused on their needs and goals. Um, that is absolutely no different. Maybe, you know, that it's a, you know, less 
physically in person and more virtual, a little more email versus uh, snail mail, which are just efficiencies, but the nature of the relationship hasn't, hasn't changed. Um, I will add that also that what technology has also done has created more and more powerful planning tools. So our ability to provide even more customized advice and even more customized solutions has increased. In that regard, the internet is an, is an amazing thing. The access to information and tools and, and the number of providers bringing that value to us that we can then filter through and find what's best for our clients has, has increased dramatically. Um, it's also created even more of a need for us. There's so much information out there. How is the, I don't want to say, um, the non-financial expert, the individual investor who's raising a family, frequently in a two-income family, kids, grandkids, how are they supposed to sift through all this information? So that's that's where we we come in. I think those are changed. those are really positive changes, um, no doubt. And that's a great segue into a question I have for you about. Um, so that undoubtedly changes to some extent the tasks and the work and the areas of focus you personally might do in your day. One is you've got more efficiencies. You can spend more, maybe less time prepping. But if Josh Schwartz had a magic wand, and we don't all have this, we always have to do things on a daily basis that perhaps aren't our favorite. But what are your favorite parts about your day? How would you structure it? What do you love about what you do today? What I love about what we do today, what I do today, and many people are doing different things, is... Uh, there, there is a retirement crisis in the United States. We know this. Um, 40, 50% of the population has less than one year saving, uh, one year's income saved. Uh, people don't have emergency funds. Our firms focus predominantly on uh, public employers, working Americans. I feel like every day we are making a difference. We are reaching out to an underserved population on a daily basis trying to help them take a positive step forward to planning for a financially secure retirement. And that just feels good. Uh, it feels good every day. So every day we wake up and I get to say, how am I going to find another employer? Because uh, that's my role. I'm not actually working with the employees anymore. I'm My job is to find uh, and position retirement plan advisors in front of employers to be their partner help their employees plan for financially secure retirement. And we're looking for not every employer in this country. There are hundreds of thousands. Um, but there is a meaningful subset of employers who really care about their employees. I've always been impressed with Cambridge. Cambridge doesn't even talk about having employees. They talk about having associates. That there's an idea out there uh, uh, among a meaningful subset of employers that they're in partnership with their employees to do something. And part of that, of their, what they bring to the partnership is not just compensation, but uh, an ability to plan for a financially secure retirement, because that's where the average working American, I'm not talking about high net worth, wealthy people, they're fine. <laughs> They've always been fine. They'll always be fine. And there's lots of people who want to service them. But that large swath of working Americans who the big wirehouses and wealth management firms don't really think about. I'm talking about a firefighter, a police officer, a school teacher, a janitor, a clerk who gives you, helps you re-up uh, your driver's license. Um, those people 
need financial planning and retirement counseling the most. And we're delivering those services in a fiduciary capacity to those people on a daily basis. But back to your question, I get to wake up every day and think about how do I find the next employer who is looking for us, looking for retirement plan advisors, because they want to make sure that they're giving their employees the best possible chance for a financially secure retirement. And when we find that employer or they find us, uh, sometimes we know it right at that first meeting. There's a philosophical click, and then we and then we move forward together, and that's a great feeling. Isn't the world an amazing place when, where you can find clients in some ways, partners, colleagues that have the same core values that you do, and we mm -hmm. all feel like we're marching on a mission to make a difference. Those were the words you used, and that's really awesome. So um, that that is very inspiring. Um, Let's shift gears a little bit. I know you just said that you no longer work with the employees. You're working with the employers. That tells our audience, if they were listening closely, that you have a team of people surrounding you and people are doing different tasks to make this um, a success. You talked earlier about having over 80 people. Talk about what you've had to do over the last 20 plus years to build a plan to keep retirement plan advisors going and growing, a succession plan and a future plan and what that process has looked like? That, that, that's a great question. And that, that has been uh, uh, an interesting and challenging and, and rewarding process. Um, it, it, I, I would say it starts with partnering with people who share the vision and mission, people who want to make a difference in the lives of their clients. And first we have to find those people and then bring them into the fold. And then over a period of time, help them grow and develop. And there's a lot of different roles. Um, some people are great with clients. Some people are good at helping somebody feel trusting enough to invest. Some people are better at, at the service side, helping people find their role, find their niche, and then keep them and help them develop professionally. Uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur and a business owner, we've also had to take risks. You got to hire people. <laughs> you got to spend some money and you got to pay them well um, so that they stay and grow and create, a, create an opportunity. The only reason we got to 80 people is because we grew into needing 80 people to service our clients. And sometimes we had to hire the people before we had all the clients. Um, otherwise, you were going to break. So a, a commitment to investing in growth and then uh, I think a big piece is then when you find those quality people who share your vision, I said partner with people, they have to become your partner. You know, we went from three founders to we now have uh, 12 partners and we're about to go to 18. Um, not everybody is an equal partner, but that and not everybody's client facing. Not like a law firm where only people who become partners are client facing. We are all in this together. We cannot deliver on our promise to our clients without everybody contributing. And all of those key contributors have to, at some point, have the ability to be partners in the firm. Um, so we have, uh, that has always been part of our DNA. In year two of our founding, our top people who jumped with us when we were, you know, when we weren't retirement plan advisors with 500 plus. Uh, employer-sponsored plans and $5 billion in assets when we were three guys with cell phones, <laughs> you know, and, and almost a client list. They quickly were given the opportunity to become partners in the firm and several times uh, since then. 
and that's uh, continue, continues to happen. That's been a key part. And always also then uh, thinking about what's next, who's next, who's going to be doing what, not just today, but in two or three or five years. I think that's a really key point that a lot of, so our business tends to attract fiercely independent entrepreneurial business people. And it's not an easy quality and task for fiercely independent entrepreneurial business people to trust their vision to others and do what you're describing. I think that's probably one of the biggest obstacles, right? If you're, mm-hmm. I, I see it with indi- individual advisors. If they're a solo, it's a big step just to hire an assistant to help them out because that what if that assistant doesn't do things exactly the way that I would want to do it? And then as you start to build the business, maybe it's partners to your point. Um, and even employees um, of all shapes and sizes and all levels of development. So congratulations for figuring that out because I don't think it's an easy thing for everyone. Well, thank you. I wouldn't say we have figured it out. We're we're muddling forward. (laughs) That's fair. Doing the best we can. (laughs) That's fair. That's all any of us can do. Um, Just a quick follow-up on that. What happens, because I think when people do start to build the model you're describing, one of the challenges tends to be that they find a great partner, but maybe that partner's vision of where they best serve the company and their skill sets are not the same, perhaps, as what you think they are. So you used the example earlier, not everybody's client-facing, but have you had to coach people through the fact that you're not really meant to be client-facing and your strengths serve the company better in a different role? And and how do you coach people through that? That's a, that's a great question. That's always challenging. Um, and sometimes we have to give people the opportunity. I've also come to realize uh, just how frequently I'm wrong. And what I'm finding is if I actually ask people, what are you comfortable with? What do you want to do? and we have discussions over it over time, um, we find together that that right path fits. You know, we've had people, uh, you know, I I started as an advisor and in that entrepreneurial and I'll just say, you know, that eat what you kill mode. So it took us a long time to learn and I'm still relearning it happened again this year where a incentive-based compensation with lots of opportunity on the upside. I continually am surprised that some people are like, I don't want that. <laughs> I want to know what I, I, I want to define my role in my compensation because that gives me a structure that I feel comfortable in and that I can thrive in. Um, and that was what was important, you know, that I didn't see that. I no longer see that as a, as a flaw. What's wrong with them? They're not entrepreneurial enough. They actually bring an incredibly important skill set and role that's essential to the success of the firm. And we need to accommodate their what they can bring into our organization. It's back to, I, I always forget who wrote it. I think it was from Good to Great. Get the right people on the bus. There's good people. If you have good people who can do work you need, define that. As long as you need that work, make that their job. You went exactly where I was hoping you would go. Um, and, and the message to our audience, I think, is, you know, times are changing. An entrepreneur, an entrepreneur is not maybe what it was when we started 20, 30 years ago. It doesn't mean it's not entrepreneurial. 
And I think oftentimes people want a particular role because they believe that role will provide the most success financially and otherwise and try to fit themselves into a mold that their personality doesn't necessarily accommodate. They don't love what they're doing. They're just doing it because they think that's what they have to do to move up in an organization or be more highly Mm -hmm. compensated. And it's our job as the earlier generation to change. We need to adapt. And that is a tough thing for all of us to do, but I think that's where the future's going. Absolutely. And uh, Jim Collins wrote Good to Great, also one of my favorite books for our audience. If they want to go check it out, I firmly believe get the right people on the bus and then make sure they're in the right seats. So we're on the same page there for sure. So um, let's shift gears and talk about education and continual learning for the industry, Josh. Um, You touched on it earlier as it relates to getting um, different types of education in the right way to clients, to investors. Uh, Do you want to expand on that? Sure. It's it's really an interesting thing. So uh, first, as industry professionals, uh, for our own professional development, education is absolutely critical. Um, The explosion of data and the ability to understand data and people in the last 20 years has been enormous. And, you know, I'm sure all of our listeners have heard the term, or at least I assume, uh, behavioral finance or behavioral economics. And the science of that, I think, is revolutionizing how we think about investing in investors uh, from the standpoint that uh, investing is not a theoretical exercise. It's a real-life situation that people are, are, are in. And what they actually do is, in some ways, more important than the whiteboard theoretical theoretical right answer. So we as professionals need to understand not just what's best for the client, but who the client is and what's important to them and how they're behaving so that we can try and move them in, in that right direction. Um, for At a client level, it's interesting. I struggle with this because what we learned in the retirement space in the last 40 years is that educating plan participants, educating working Americans, does not necessarily change behavior. I think everybody knows the secret to a successful investing in retirement planning. Start early and save, buy low, sell high. <laughs> so um, easy. Right. We also know the secret to not, you, no one can see that I'm overweight here, but the secret to not being overweight is not overeating, but it doesn't mean we can actually do it. So we need to help our, we need to educate clients. We need to explain and help them understand the recommendations we make, but we cannot confuse educating clients or explaining something with actually that that that's the end goal. What we have to do is present that information and interact with them in a way that will move them to taking action, making uh, positive steps forward. And so as, as professionals, understanding how our clients behave and and actually talking about that with clients, helping them understand, you know, their own behavior, so that they can make those small difference, small steps forward, uh, that will have big impacts long term on their financial stability and future. Great advice. Great advice. All right, um, I'm going to shift gears again. I love to wrap up these sessions, letting our audience understand that they can 
be highly successful in our industry and still have a personal life and outside interests. So um, I know your family is a big priority for you. Please share with us information about your children um, and uh, how you spend time with them. And, and then what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? What do you do when you're not working? Gotcha. So um, I have two sons who are um, the love of my life and uh, big sports fans. And uh, so I, I don't know when this is going to broadcast, but we are now, um, it, it's it's July and the NBA finals and uh, Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Bucks. I'm in Chicago. So I'm obviously a Bulls fan, but Milwaukee's not far. Came down from 0-2, was up 3-2. Um, I have been enjoying watching sports with my sons, whether going to games, watching on TV, um, that's been, been a, a great fun. Also, uh, music, uh, live music. I'm a huge music fan. So are my kids. Uh, my older son plays piano. My younger son is, you know, right now working on guitar and drums. So talking about different genres of music. Um, you know, I'm an old rock and roller. My older son's into hip hop and rap. So having uh, teaching each other about music and enjoying music together has been a been a great joy for me. I'm also uh, I'm very active politically. You know, sort of as an extension of my professional work, wanting to make a difference. You know, whatever your view of government is, the truth is government is a big factor in our, our society. Taxes, Social Security, you know, national health care or not, all of those issues are a big deal for Americans. And I want to have a, a voice in, in that process. So I, I'm active in that. I'm also very active in my, uh, in my synagogue. So you, there is a lot of opportunity and time, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I have to stay organized. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in situations uh, like those, politics, being involved in other organizations, including religion, it never fails that it's the top 10 people or the same 10 people that are always doing everything. So, yes, you have to stay organized. <laughs> I think that's an imp important key. Um, so thank you for all of that. Um, I happen to be a Suns fan, and I'm going to be really jealous if you make it to one of these games. But now I'm going to be texting you on the side. Maybe we need, a, you know, some some uh, inspiration for each other to stay engaged in who's up. Because I thought we had it in the bag after those first two games, my friend. Yep. Well, well we will definitely be texting to Tuesday night. <laughs> I, I will be at a work conference in Florida. Uh, we're back. It's so good to be back in person. And I will be with a room full of people. I don't know if they're going to be uh, Suns in the hospitality suite, uh, Suns fans or Bucks fans, but I will be texting with you, Amy. You'll probably have a little bit of both. And that's what makes it fun. Fair enough. So, um, Josh, let's close. Um, I know that you were a founding member of Cambridge's Diversity, Equality and Inclusion Committee. Thank you for serving and helping us accelerate our efforts. Can you share with our audience just a little bit about your experience and why DE&I has been important to you and why you raised your hand in the beginning of all of, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the more formal approach that we've been taking? Sure. Uh, so we live in a big country with a lot of different people. Um, and ultimately, we're still all people. And there's differences, and we don't all have to agree or think the same, but to acknowledge and recognize the common humanity of, of everybody. Uh, I'll remember when the um, uh, mapping the human genome, that human genome project that happened in the 90s, which has led to almost all of the medical advances that we've seen in the last 20 years, these 
incredible cancer drugs, the ability to create the COVID vaccine so quickly, directly related to mapping the human genome. The number one takeaway from mapping the human genome is that human beings are 99% the same. 99% the same. And as a human being, as a person, as a member of this society, this country, uh, I'm an American and I uh, consider myself a very patriotic American. We have evolved as a country, a nation of immigrants trying to create a, a democracy and that we should start with respecting everybody. And that Cambridge was saying, we want to even, Cambridge has always been, you and Eric at the forefront of respecting people, valuing people. Kindness is one of Cambridge's core values. Not a lot of businesses lead with kindness in their core values. I think that's wonderful. And starting the DEI -E committee like you did, Amy, is, you, is Cambridge living its values and when I saw that, I found myself saying, somebody has to do it with them. They, they are asking for volunteers. So it was important to me, another example of where our values match. So I stepped up and, you know, and I also knew, I'm just glad you were doing it, despite my own feelings of the importance of this, my firm hasn't done a great job, you know, and we could do better. Um, I'll call it a first public announcement. Uh, we um, Consciously went out and recruited. We have hired an incredibly talented professional African-American woman. She's starting in 10 days. I am beyond excited, but this is where we have to take those uh, forward actions. Um, and you know, could not just because it's the right thing to do, but from a business standpoint, we live in a diverse country. Our firm focuses on doing business with working Americans. Well, last I checked, working Americans are a lot of different kinds of people. And if I want that um, client base, potential client base to work with our firm, we need, they need to see themselves reflected in us. So we are very consciously wanting to make sure that our workforce, our team reflects our clients back to them. Couldn't have said it better. Thank you for stepping up and helping us out. Uh, congratulations on making each small step matters in this journey of DE&I, in my opinion. So you've got to start somewhere. You helped us at Cambridge um, take it to the next level. And I'm glad to hear that it's happening at RPA. And I can't wait to see you in person one of these days, my friend. It's been a long time. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. Thank you for being you. That's the important thing. And thank you, Amy, for being you and for inviting me uh, to share, uh, share some thoughts with you this morning. Talk to you soon. Yep. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and head on over to our blog for more content at cambridgestronger.com. That's cambridgestronger.com. We are Cambridge Stronger.